0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you doing?
0: Oh, just getting ready for this semester. I've uh, been out in the field a lot. It warmed up, so that's nice. Gonna spend all day tomorrow out there. Pretty excited.
1: Well, we've already had a week of classes, and in fact, at the day we're recording this, so a little earlier in the week, we had a snow squall come through and all the public schools let out.
0: Oh, wow. Um, I will say we had like a quarter inch of snow this weekend and everything was canceled. It was hysterical. I hope you people laugh at us now.
1: (laughs) A little bit, but I will say that there's still a lot of bad driving that occurs up here.
0: Oh, man, I bet. (laughs) Uh, that's why uh, yeah we're taking advantage of the midweek fifty degree weather to go out and uh, scout some more field locations. So um, getting really excited about that because we don't start for another week. Ha ha. Oh wow. <laughs> yep yep pretty late this year.
1: Yeah it is. I mean the wind well the high tomorrow here with wind chill is going to be five.
0: Like so degrees I'm, Fahrenheit.
1: Degrees Fahrenheit.
0: <laughs> Uh, uh i think we're gonna be 57 <laughs> sorry. Order of magnitude different <laughs> oh boy
1: you know my favorite temperature is when it's zero outside because then when someone says what's the temperature i can just say there isn't one
0: womp womp uh, i like it <laughs> and they say man you're a weather weenie
1: Oh, they do. But uh, yeah, no, I've been staying inside. I've been submitting some abstracts, and I'm doing a lot of international travel over the next few months. And oh, oh, man, international travel paperwork, export control and traveling to countries, any country that's on the State (laughs) Department's watch or warning list is just a total nightmare.
0: Oh, yes, and then trying to ship equipment over there that comes in the form of a chainsaw that's modified to drill rocks. Mm, I've got some horror stories there as well.
1: (laughs) I haven't had to deal with that. Uh, Just getting my laptop with any data on it internationally is a challenge because of export controls. Yeah.
0: Wow, that is not fun. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder why you do it (laughs) sometimes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, at some point you just take an iPad and be happy with that yeah
0: yeah or think everything i need is in the u.s
1: (laughs) yeah i mean or a lot of this uh stuff is in the cloud somewhere where i can pull it down anyway always good right (laughs) but well we actually have a news article and some feedback so i don't know where you want to start but we have several (laughs) things before we get going uh
0: well we've been having a lot of earthquakes around here so why don't we start with that news article which has nothing to do with oklahoma (laughs)
1: No, it has nothing to do with Oklahoma earthquakes, so there have been a lot of interesting things in the news about that. But oh, it has yes. to do with the earthquake that really started it all, at least <laughs> here, which was the 1906 San Francisco earthquake followed by fire.
0: Yes, and um, I just read an article about this as well, talking about how it was really around the country they just called it the San Francisco Fire because they wanted to populate out there so they didn't want people realizing that it was a bunch of earthquakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we really just talked about the fire for a long time, but, you know, the actual earthquake. But this is about the last known survivor of that, which was 1906.
1: Yeah, and so this earthquake, we think it was somewhere between a 7.7 and an 8.3. It was very big mm-hmm. and, like we said, burned down most of the city. And uh, this gentleman was just a baby when this happened. He was three months old.
0: Oh, oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> and doesn't really remember anything, but was told that his parents bundled him up, commandeered a buckboard wagon in the street, <laughs> and got out of town.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, a Mr. William A. Del Monte. And they've got, uh, it's linked in the show notes. They've got some information about this guy. A uh, really interesting person. And he was 109 uh, wow. when he passed away this week. Uh, almost 110, which this year is the 110th anniversary of the earthquake uh, right. that killed a little over 3,000 people, we think.
0: Uh, that is really interesting. Yeah. How cool. And
1: there's. Uh, a lot of information out there on this there's several books that talk about this earthquake extensively oh, and yes. some of the most famous photos in uh earthquake research i uh, don't want to say seismology because i don't think they're really seismological photos but uh come from <laughs> this earthquake of like offset fences and there's some iconic photos of certain early geologic figures
0: uh like, yes like standing on some of the uh fractures and i've seen pictures of you know women out there in their full dress skirts out in the field it's pretty cool
1: yeah it turns out that was actually the girlfriend who was a botanist of one of the usgs uh one of the usgs employees
0: (laughs) that's excellent that makes it even better
1: (laughs) and she climbed back into a burning building to recover some of her plant specimens that without her doing that they would have lost that line
0: Wow. Um, that's, some, that's some awesome dedication to science, even if it is plants. hmm
1: Yes, it's uh, <laughs> a really interesting story behind that. But this article's is linked in, and it's pretty short. It's definitely worth having a read.
0: Uh, that's awesome. Um, we also have some earthquake-related feedback, right?
1: Yeah, well, not directly earthquake-related. This This feedback, I'm ashamed to say, has been sitting in the inbox for a little while, Oh: Yeah, so sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is from listener Bart, who has corresponded with us before. And uh, he said, "Well, when you guys were talking about posters and poster making, you strayed into my area of expertise. Oh uh,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> So he said that he would like to see some posters, and I had sent him a link and said that at least most of the posters that I make go up on my website which we say at the end of every show. So you can go there and look at them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he said that maybe our enthusiasm for trying tools like InDesign, he said, well, you should still try it, but that may be a little misplaced. That Illustrator probably really is the tool we want to be using.
0: Yeah. I I Uh, agree, Bart. (laughs) Yeah. And he
1: also had a tip that, I didn't mention, you know, I had talked about drawing—I I miss said the pen tool, and he says, no, it's actually the pencil tool in Illustrator, which is true—drawing, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of cartoon-like shapes. And he pointed out, which I've done this before um, and just didn't mention it, but actually this is a really good tip that I'd forgotten about. You can draw a shape like a regular rectangle, and then if you go into the effects menu and distort and transform— There's something called Ruffin, and you can get this kind of hand-drawn zigzag appearance using the Ruffin tool. And he actually made some examples and sent them to us in the email.
0: Yeah, I thought that was super awesome looking. Um, I didn't know anything about that because I don't ever use that, but um, I played with it after that.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, and we also had uh, some discussion about how the education systems work and maybe why earth science education doesn't quite get the reputation it should, which is as an interesting and fulfilling science, but maybe it's thought of as boring or traumatic even uh, (laughs) when people take it. And uh, my favorite line in the email uh, was, I'm terribly unfamiliar with high schools in the U.S. growing up in Holland, which happens a lot when you're Dutch. Uh, (laughs) So It's uh, got some really great information in the email, and I think we'll at some point have to revisit uh, figure design, but Mm -hmm. probably not for a while, because we have a whole suite of topics and interviews lined up that are really fascinating, and I'm excited to kind of get back to basics, back to some of the fundamental processes of geology.
0: Uh, Yes, I agree. Um, It's... It's good to, number one, well, at least for me, it's good to get me back into that sort of mindset um, as the semester starts again because um, in the spring I teach you know an intro geology that has a um, takes indigenous people's thoughts and perspectives on really basic Western science. So it's a good thing to kick off your semester and get back in the mood of why you, Fell in love with geoscience in the first place, if you are a geoscientist or, you know, why you think it's interesting. Um, We've gotten feedback from people who aren't necessarily geoscientists, but who really like what we're talking about. And so we're going to bring some of those more basic sort of, this is cool stuff to you for the next couple of episodes, for sure.
1: Well, and it's also good to remind me that ends up sitting behind a computer writing a lot (laughs) of code. Or sitting in front of a hydraulic press in a lab, that I'm actually dealing with things that are supposed to resemble, you know, rocks or something like that.
0: You should go outside and touch (laughs) rocks in in their natural habitat. In situ, if you will. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I forget about you lab monkeys.
1: (laughs) It can be a challenge sometimes. Uh, Uh, Oh, boy. I know (laughs) it for
0: sure. Uh, One of my good friends was a geophysicist, and we mocked her all the time because her least favorite thing to do was to touch rocks. So, yep.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's been a long time since I've had uh, some real field experience. In fact, possibly not too long after we were in the field together last. Yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, But since, you know, you've had some cold weather up there and you're forced to stay inside, cold weather... Got me thinking about something that I know you probably love even more than I do, and that is glaciers.
1: Oh, yes. Ice <laughs> is one of my favorite minerals because it is a mineral.
0: Uh, <clears throat> yeah, sort of.
1: No, it's a mineral. By the <laughs> definition, it is a mineral.
0: <laughs> um, all right, we'll just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother show.
1: As you can tell, we've never had this discussion before,
0: oh yeah, I've never over beers for hours and hours <laughs> <laughs> um so you're freezing up there, and we're burning up down here, so you know <laughs> it's an interesting thing to talk about glaciers um because really overall, these are on their way out worldwide, and it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting and while sort of the debate about whether climate change has any man-made help is kind of not relevant anymore, we agree on that as scientists. What maybe we don't always think about is what are we doing to glaciers? Because it's not something that we see a lot of here in the U.S., right? I mean, most people don't live next to a glacier, so maybe you don't think about them that much.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I saw a great example just this week on Twitter, and I will try to find it and put it in the show notes, uh, that was a gif someone had made that showed the Mendenhall Glacier starting in, I believe it was 1953, this is in Alaska, mm-hmm. uh, to the present, just a bunch of photos taken from the same angle over a little over 50 years, and you could see just in that short time span how much it has retreated, it was terrifying.
0: Oh, yeah. Um The Visitor Center
1: is not anywhere close to the foot of the glacier, and it used to be.
0: (laughs) And it used to be, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Uh, In the intro book that I use, they actually have those exact pictures of the Mendenhall Glacier, and it's unbelievable. Um, Just if you're interested in this sort of stuff, especially after we've done talking, um, I will mention and we'll link this in. um, You should definitely watch the documentary Chasing Ice. It is amazing. I show parts of it to my intro class every year. And it's unbelievable. So we'll talk a lot about some of the things that they talk about as well. But we should probably talk about what's a glacier anyway, right? Because there's a very specific definition for what makes a glacier.
1: Right. I mean, basically, we're talking about a big pile of ice. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Which
1: is not the very specific definition that you had in mind. But <laughs> that is pretty much what it is. Oh, uh, yeah. And. We'll talk about how ice flows because that's something that I love to ramble on about. Uh, (laughs) But to get this pile of ice, you have to be in an area where you've got an influx of frozen precipitation, which is one of your favorite things.
0: Uh, Exactly. Um, I'm putting together that show right now Um, because I love talking about different types of frozen precip that falls from the sky because there's so many different pieces of it. But none of that matters. All it matters is that you have some. And that your snowfall, wherever you're talking about, is greater than your snow melt. That's really the equation for making a glacier, right? You have to be above the snow line because you have to have snow that can stick around year after year because it takes a couple of years to sort of seed a glacier. Um, And that snow line changes with latitude, right? So if you were at the equator, you'd have to be really high in elevation, but then closer to the poles, you're colder already, so the snow line is lower. Um, And in our case, as of right now, we have ice on both of our poles. Um, So that's a really simple equation. Snowfall greater than snowmelt.
1: Yeah. And ironically enough, you generally are talking a dry climate.
0: (laughs) I love this. Um, I love Uh, talking about that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not what you would expect. (laughs) Exactly. And I love throwing this out there, too, when you ask about what's the biggest desert. Well, technically... Technically, Antarctica is the biggest desert, right? Because in order to be a desert, the strict definition is less than 15% vegetation and less than 25 centimeters of rainfall a year. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, if you have a lot of precip that isn't snow, especially, you know, you just can't keep the snowfall greater than snow melt ratio that you need to start building your big pile of ice
1: right and so this is the way that the snow actually becomes ice in itself i know that there's people at penn state here that research this uh but pretty much you get a pile of snow and it starts getting heavy the deeper you go just like if you go underwater or start drilling down through rock you get this pressure increase that goes like the density the force of gravity and the height of stuff above you all integrated
0: right exactly um and it sedimentologists like myself, you know, we're used to talking about turning sediments into rocks and it's the exact same thing with a glacier is that you're turning what started a snow into a rock essentially. So you've got this snowfall greater than snow belt. So you just start piling up your snow. And as that compression starts to happen, you actually start to recrystallize your frozen precip Um, and this is really interesting there's a lot that could be talked about (laughs) just in this couple sentences that we're going to talk about how you make this glacier because compression and then you start to recrystallize and you start to change the structure of your frozen precip and that over time and with more compression is what starts to make you know your big pile of really big thick ice it's not just a bunch of snowflakes glued together anymore
1: yeah, and this is the key to what could be an entirely different show, a some a show that we should get an expert in on. Uh, yes. <laughs> but as the snow is compacted, it traps little pockets of air, and that is the key to climate studies using ice cores.
0: Exactly. Um just like you get pore spaces in rocks, right? So holes in between the grains where you can store lovely goodies like oil or water or gas, um, or anything. It's the same thing with this big pile of ice. And instead of storing hydrocarbons or water, they're storing the atmosphere. And that's why it's important to climate scientists because the atmosphere, when that snow fell, traps those little bubbles Now you can look back in time at atmospheric composition directly, which is something that's really hard to do when you're just looking at rocks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you can also look at the orientation of the ice crystals and infer things about the stress field, the flow field, uh, all kinds of stuff. And we also have people here that uh, work on that there's a very active ice group here and like i said we should get an expert on to talk about that because from sitting in on their meetings for the last few years i know just enough to say it wrong
0: <laughs> to be dangerous exactly. right <laughs> <laughs> um that's cool because i mean this is one of those things which i know we talk about at great length uh both on the show and off is about sort of the crossover of the physics of all these different earth processes and that's one of them right there you know we have very specific you know magmas that cool and the crystals form directions and you can infer all this stuff about the tectonics of that you know magma chamber based on the orientation of the crystals so it's really neat because it's the same thing with these glaciers
1: yeah, and since ice is a mineral, you can do the same thing that you do <laughs> <laughs> under a microscope with uh, the traditional minerals. Uh, you can basically look at extinction and figure out where what we call the C axis, or just a line perpendicular to these rings of water molecules, is. Mm-hmm. And you can see that as the ice gets deeper and deeper, the C axes start to line up because it's being uh, forced into the lowest possible state right
0: uh, exactly um, and I totally urge you we'll, we'll try to find some links to that in the show notes um, I know the intro book that I use uh, Stephen Margek's, uh intro geology book shows a succession of these sort of thin sections of ice and how the crystals start to line up and it's super super neat um, it's really cool but yeah
1: and I'll probably get this number wrong Uh <laughs> because i haven't looked it up in a while and didn't think to put it in the show notes but ice if you deform it uh, in one direction the easy glide direction where these rings of water molecules uh, can slide past each other easily it's something like tens of times easier to deform in that direction than in the direction perpendicular to it oh wow Uh, i want to say the number was around 40 times easier but i'm going to settle with tens of times for now
0: (laughs) That's a nice uh, round cover your basis figure. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so back to combating this ice, because I feel like we could get stuck here. Yeah, that was a pulp. that was a rabbit that we chased. <laughs> exactly, atmosphere and minerals. Yes, <laughs> I said it. Atmosphere and minerals together. Um, I want to get to this cool, ridiculous geology word, and that is fern. <laughs>
1: So fern is the uncompacted to semi-compacted snow that's in the first few meters to...
0: Right, exactly. So right when you start to get the deformation, well, not deformation, you'll probably take issue with that, the recrystallization of this frozen precip as it keeps getting compacted and essentially lithified, as my intro students would know. Um, Right it turns into this thing called fern and it's a very recognizable texture which is why it has a name because that's what we do in geology is name stuff <laughs> and um it's about two-thirds as dense as water in this state
1: right and you know this is where they dig uh, pits and count little layers year by year by year of accumulation by uh, measuring these tiny fern layers and it's mind-numbing work but
0: oh (laughs) that's why you have that's why you have graduate students yeah (laughs) or undergrads actually um so this fern stuff um is sort of semi-compacted stuff um it's been recrystallized so it's denser than say just snow but it's not actual glacial ice yes it's kind of a grainy sugary type texture um there's all kinds you can search for and there's all sorts of images for it and it's just fun to say too um but that's (laughs) so that's what frozen precip does on its way to becoming big ice crystals that make up a glacier
1: and then when you get this pile of big ice crystals that's where things get interesting because they start to move
0: yeah you can't fight gravity (laughs) um nope so it takes On the order of like 100 years, basically, to get snow, compress it, recrystallize it, fern it, squeeze all the air out, and make these huge, big ice crystals, which can be, you know, meters long, um, in the bottom of glaciers. And just like John said, what goes up, you've got to start uh, obeying the laws of physics. And because these glaciers are these big, heavy piles, high, sometimes kilometers thick, they start to move because ice flows, or water flows, whether it's solid or liquid, and it's basically the same sort of thing on a different scale.
1: I mean, everything has some sort of viscous or flowing behavior over a long enough time span. Right. And, yeah, basically the analogy that people use a lot when they're talking about glaciers is it's like you start pouring pancake batter out, and the pancake batter will spread under its own weight. That's why it doesn't just stay in one spot and make a really thick, skinny pancake
0: uh yeah and instead of cooking it it's frozen at the bottom
1: <laughs> right <laughs> uh so ice actually does flow internally and deform over you know long in quotes time spans and right. i say in quotes because compared to rocks this is nothing oh, uh, this is this right. is something we can observe in our <laughs> lifetime this is great
0: exactly you can stand there and hear a glacier deforming actually <laughs> um which I know you're obsessed with all kinds of sounds that ice makes and that the atmosphere makes, but it's the same sort of thing. Um, and it goes back to that whole thing, you know, it's the same deformation that happens to rocks, but on this short time span, um, the same deformation happens to glaciers and it's not all moving at one speed, right? Like the bottom moves differently than the top, moves differently than the thick center. It's really complex.
1: Oh, yeah. And so (laughs) let's say that you drill a borehole entirely through a glacier. So from the top all the way down to the bed. Okay. And to make things simple, let's just say that it is sitting on rock. It's not sitting on soil that we would call till.
0: Fine. We'll make it boring. (laughs) Yeah, we'll make it boring.
1: So there is a possibility if this glacier has a warm, in quotes, bed, And that means that the ice is at the pressure melting point. So there is a layer of liquid water there. It's Mm -hmm. just going to slide downhill.
0: (gasps) Which is awesome.
1: (laughs) Which is really (laughs) nice. And you can get really fast sliding uh, to the point of marginally terrifying. But there's not a whole lot of internal deformation. The weakest point is where the ice block meets the rock so the ice doesn't deform internally much your borehole will stay pretty much straight up and down mm-hmm. and just slide down the side of the mountain
0: but, but that doesn't <laughs> happen a lot
1: there are a few places there are some mountain glaciers that do this uh, and it, it actually gets really seasonal then because when you get a lot right. of meltwater, the pore pressure or the water pressure down below goes up and it just jacks the glacier up and it starts sliding down the hill
0: Even more, right. Um, The Hubbard Glacier in Alaska, so we call those glacial surges when it all moves sort of together. You know, glaciers naturally will retreat and advance over time in response to climate, in response to precipitation. Um, But this Hubbard Glacier once surged 10 meters in one day, which is kind of terrifying.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, we'll have to talk about ice streams a little bit later. That also, I mean, some of these move six to 800 meters a year.
0: That's unbelievable.
1: Yeah. Uh, but if we go back to our borehole, we can make this situation more interesting uh-huh. by saying now, let's say that the glacier is frozen to the bedrock. It's very cold at the base and the base is stuck and will not move. Now, the ice will flow internally spreading like this pancake batter that we talked about. And if you go back, your borehole will be The top of the borehole will be way downstream. The bottom of the borehole will be exactly where it was because it's frozen. And it will have this not straight line, but curved profile connecting them.
0: Uh, And so I'm imagining how wind speed increases with height and you get this nice sort of curved, curved line of, you know, not moving at the surface and then getting faster and faster as you remove friction, right? So I'm guessing that's kind of what your borehole is going to look like?
1: Yeah, sort of. Uh, and
0: Well, really, with a little more complexities.
1: With a little more complexity. (laughs) And really, this is what we do in geoscience a lot, is we take the two extreme in-member cases, like the glacier is entirely frozen to the bed and will not move, and the glacier does not deform internally and just slides down the hill, And we can solve those problems relatively easily, and then we know that all real-life situations lie in between them.
0: (laughs) Um, That's actually something that a lot of people don't understand. Um, I find that I have to explain the term end member quite a bit, Um, and it's sort of disturbing because you assume that we've got a really good handle on science, but hopefully that's one thing that you take from all this is it's not exact and right <laughs> there is a vast array of answers um and yeah just like you said it's easy to do that it's easy to imagine it that way and it's easy to imagine it the other way and those are the two end members but everything exists basically somewhere in between those and, and that's where these complexities come well, from.
1: exactly and it's really similar to what people do every day in their real life but don't uh, don't call it in-member situations, yes, exactly, where they exactly. say, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. That is the in-member situation. And what's the best that can happen? And then real life is generally somewhere in between.
0: Right, exactly. You can't eat macaroni and cheese every day for lunch, which is the best in-member. What? <laughs> <laughs> After a certain age, it catches up with you. That's all I'm saying.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. So <laughs> so that's the, the couple ways that glaciers can move but then you can start talking about some of the more complicated ways and i put these in the notes you're gonna have to stop me from going on too long about them
0: Uh, yep (laughs) but does the
1: word regulation ring a bell
0: Mm, yeah i think i had that for lunch the other day too
1: (laughs) yeah so this is it's one of my favorite words and We solved this problem actually in a thermodynamics class I took as an undergraduate in meteorology. Always fun. Yeah. And (laughs) the idea is you take a copper wire, you hang some weights on the end of it, and you put an ice block in a freezer. You set this copper wire on top of the ice block with the weights hanging down. And if you were to do a time-lapse video, you would see the wire go all the way through the ice block and fall out of the bottom. But the ice would never have been cut.
0: That's awesome. We did not have the same thermo teacher. Right.
1: So the wire will (laughs) melt its way through effectively, even though everything's below zero Celsius. And the water freezes again immediately behind it so that there's ice behind it, ice in front of it, but it does move. This is the process of regulation.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And that has to do with pressure, right?
1: That has to do with pressure. And you'll notice earlier I said the melting or the pressure melting point instead of just the melting point.
0: Right. Exactly. Because once you start pressurizing, things start to change.
1: Yeah, the melting point of ice changes with pressure. Uh, you can look at a phase diagram and see this. So they're basically these big plots that say solid liquid gas. Right. Yeah. And there's this idea called the Wirtmann tombstone
0: that you was used. You just wanted to write that. <laughs> I, I like the German names. Uh, and this
1: said... Let us suppose that the glacier is on this solid rock bed and that at regularly spaced intervals, there are these little tombstones, these little cubes of rock sticking up. Okay. And if they're on the order of a centimeter in size on each side, ice will move past them by this regulation process. The ice flows up to the the Wirtman tombstone, And the pressure increases at this face, So the ice melts, turns to water. The water squirts around the side to the lower pressure backside. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: On the backside, when it's lower pressure, now all of a sudden the water is out of equilibrium. It should be in a solid state again. Right. So it freezes. And when it freezes, freezing ice is an exothermic process. So heat is released from the water goes to the rock, heat diffuses through the rock to the side where the pressure is high and heats it. So not only do you have high pressure, but you also have increased temperature temperature. from thermal diffusion.
0: That's pretty awesome.
1: So cool. And you can work out all the physics. It works great if you put the copper wire versus a nylon string or a nylon wire. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll see a huge difference in the speed they move, and we can predict it pretty much exactly. Uh, But if these tombstones get much bigger than a centimeter on a side... The thermal diffusion doesn't really work on the right time scales, and the process kind of breaks down, and then ice has to move in a different way.
0: Yeah, because rocks are really good insulator, insulators, so it's hard to uh, move heat through it in any sort of, you know, quick manner, geologically or otherwise quick.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so if if you have an anomaly that's big, like, you know, say when Cleveland gets run over by ice again one day, (laughs) uh, (laughs) then... The ice has to deform internally, squish or squeeze out or stretch or somehow strain to move around uh, whatever's in its way. And that creates actual things like folds that we can see in radar, radar grams of ice.
0: Right. Um, Which is crazy and super cool. Um, As a sedimentologist, I care less about when it deforms around them and more about when it picks the things up that are in its way. (laughs)
1: yeah you like those weird dropstone
0: things (laughs) they're really the best which we'll talk about here in a minute
1: (laughs) yeah and so do you think much about till i mean everything we've talked about so far has been glaciers sitting on plain bedrock
0: yeah that's pretty boring i will agree um (laughs) uh i mean sure i like till (laughs) there's actually um so are you going to define till for everybody?
1: So till is the uh, basically soil, ground up material that a glacier is riding over and that lubricates its movement. It's not on just rock.
0: Right. Exactly. So, you know, obviously glaciers aren't just on rock and um, glacial till is something that we talk about. So till is cool. Um Ice is one of those great mechanical erosion agents. It's the greatest, right? It can These glaciers can do a lot of damage. And depending on what they're riding on, it depends on what kind of damage they do. So if you're just on boring old bedrock, you can make things like striations. Um, you can polish the bedrock. In fact, I think up near your neck of the woods, they have a lot of sort of like water slides in the summer that are on polished glacial rock. Yeah, Someone there's a lot of
1: about <laughs> there's a lot of polished rock and all kinds of weird like plucking features.
0: Right. Uh, right.
1: Yeah, where you can tell what direction the ice was flowing based on where the rock broke off and ended up getting swept away to be one of those ones that you find later and are puzzled about. Uh Right.
0: Uh yeah. those have an awesome name, erratics. That's such a cool uh, You know, <laughs> I I always thought that
1: cool referred term. to you know, like the the uh, almost emeritus professors. But ah erratics turn out to refer to these rocks that are picked up and dropped randomly almost by melting at the base of the glacier
0: uh yes not to be confused with those things when people write textbooks and make mistakes too um yes <laughs> <laughs> actually now those things these erratics are um sort of the beginning of the story of modern glacial science because um, if you're from anywhere up north say I've seen these in Montana a lot. This is sort of what I think about because all through the fields, there'll be these random boulders of all different sizes, Um, you know, so gravel to pebble, cobble, and then these huge, massive boulders, and they have no obvious sort of size or shape distribution, and they're not similar to any rocks that are right nearby. You know, they might be similar to rocks that are 100 kilometers away. Um, and that was really a mystery, not to mention a pain in the butt for farmers who were trying to till a different kind of till (laughs) of the fields, right? Because these random boulders get in the way. Um, and it wasn't until the early 19th century that, oh, Agassiz?
1: Agassiz.
0: (laughs) Okay. Agassiz. All right. Great.
1: (laughs) Agassiz, uh, side note that we won't chase down uh but you should look up quotes they're fascinating he's
0: crazy right
1: he had a lot of very quotable things and did some insane things to learn about glaciers
0: um so this this book that i was reading had a couple of them and i stopped myself from continuing on besides just mentioning him like i'd read about him before but yeah it was pretty cool okay
1: yeah no i mean this uh (laughs) Him dangling on ropes and doing things and then coming out and saying, I don't recommend it. Uh, just <laughs> fascinating person. But you should tell us how he contributed to getting glacial science started.
0: <laughs> so um, he had seen these erratics, and he had also, you know, he grew up in Europe, hiked a lot in Switzerland, and he was really familiar with alpine glaciers. Um, and so what we're talking about here, sort of is continental glaciation, right? And he noticed that there's no sorting, it doesn't matter, glaciers are equal opportunity movers of sediment, whether you're tiny or big, and the distance of transport, transport um, some of these Alpine glaciers, they can take really big rocks a really long way. And he said that these erratics that are all over the farm fields were caused by these big continental glaciers, and suggested that Europe was once in an ice age where You know, most of the continent was covered by ice. And that was pretty controversial at the time.
1: Yeah. And luckily, science evolved fast enough that he did get to see some of these ideas accepted.
0: Uh, Right, because that's not always the case. (laughs) Uh, I I would say it (laughs) might
1: even be rarely the case.
0: Yes, exactly. And Wegner, Bowen, from Bowen's reaction series, are very... Um, famous examples of that not being true but so he's seen this he came to america he recognized this in the united states as well and said you know there's a lot of ice we've had a lot of different ice ages and glaciers are responsible for some of these weird features that we've seen like these glacial what we call them glacial erratics now um so we can invoke glaciers when we can't explain a rock's presence anywhere
1: but just dropping rocks around randomly isn't the only thing that glaciers do that we get to see every day.
0: Right. Well, not all of us, because they never made it down here. Eh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most famously, the Great Lakes, right? Like, you learn that, and hopefully you learned that in middle school, <laughs> that the Great Lakes were carved by glaciers. And I mean, if you've never seen the Great Lakes, they're pretty big. People surf on them.
1: Yeah, and I remember a Bill Nye the Science Guy episode where he talked about glaciers carving the Great Lakes, and he had this huge block of ice in one hand that was probably a foot long and six inches wide or something, and a like a sandbox filled with soil, and he just jammed it through it, <laughs> and the rain started filling up this big hole, and that's uh, not a bad conceptual model
0: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and that sand has to go somewhere that's these glacial erratics um i mean ice moves an unbelievable amount of sediment i know we talked about this in my catastrophic sedimentation class um because it does it's it's on a smaller or a longer time scale than you would say like just a regular flood but it does a lot of stuff we'll talk here in a minute about some of the dams that it creates and the flooding associated with that um but We've been in a lot of different glacial cycles. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this from high school. I sort of remember something about it, but we talk about it a lot at our field camp because we're in Colorado. Um, So we're in an ice age right now. We have been for some time, but we're in what we call an interglacial period. So a time when our glaciers aren't growing. Um, They're actually retreating. And since the Pleistocene, you know, 2.6 million years ago or so, we've gone through a number of these glacial, interglacial cycles. Right. And some of them, maybe you have heard them in class. Um, they're named after basically their southernmost extents. Nebraskan, Kansas, Illinois, and Wisconsin were the last four glacial periods that are responsible for a lot of our current geomorphology.
1: Right. Now, just because there are these natural periods of glaciation and deglaciation, don't confuse that with the fact that humans have become an anthropogenic driver. Yes. Of climate change.
0: Yes, that's not um, what we're saying at all. Yes, exactly. We're saying that these climate cycles are normal. There's a lot of stuff that's abnormal once we show up on the on the scene and start burning fossil fuels. Um, but that's that'll be a follow up glacial story. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> <Where we'll> dis- <laughs> yes, or we'll discuss some of these sort of natural climate drivers. There's lots of different time periods of climate cycles that affect glaciation that are just simply fascinating um, and our anthropogenic influence on them as well. Um, and I threw out that cool word geomorphology because I really love that word. It's cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. So maybe you should and, explain geomorphology. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so all it means is sort of like looking at the landscape and how the landscape got where it is. It's not necessarily a glacial term, but I do say our current geomorphology because so much of sort of the northern tier of the U.S. and certainly Canada and, say, northern Europe, um, so much of their current topography, you look around, and it can be explained by either continental or alpine glaciers. And it's because, I mean, ice is really strong, and it picks up everything and carves it out, moves it around, and it does a lot of sort of damage in terms of erosion. Um, It's pretty impressive, actually, and the more I read about it, the more unbelievable it is. Um so today I said we're in an interglacial and about ten percent of the land mass of the world is covered by glaciers, whereas our last glacial period that ended about ten thousand years ago, it was up to thirty percent. And I know that doesn't sound like much, but thirty percent of the world covered in ice? Only ten thousand years ago? Mm-hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And also think about how much of the world by I guess Surface area is land versus water.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. <Exactly>.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> lots, lots of glaciers. <laughs> right. Lots of glaciers. So
1: these glaciers also, in addition to doing things like carve huge lakes, make all kinds of other landforms that you probably wouldn't think of as being glacially related if you just saw them. Uh, but they're they are they're pretty interesting and they always get interesting names.
0: Oh yeah, I love the uh, the sort of mm, vocabulary associated with the glacier stuff because none of them are intuitive whatsoever. No, <laughs> except for maybe kettle lakes. That one's kind of intuitive, mm. which explains much of Minnesota.
1: Right. So, <laughs> which one do you want to start with? There's several.
0: Um. So let's just start with moraines because we talked about till a little bit. Which um. There's a whole lot of paleomagnetic research that goes on with till and i'll just leave that for later but to pique everyone's interest there's ways that you can look at till and how it's oriented and tell some things about glaciers um but so the glaciers have this stuff they carry it along with it but when the glacier goes away what happens to all the sediment just Uh, gets dumped in a big pile it melts Um, out yeah exactly so this could happen in lots of different areas because the glacier doesn't just you know go forward melt and that's it right we can have going forward retreating going forward past where it went before and every time it does retreat and melt it leaves a moraine that's what that big pile of sediment is called really unconsolidated random sizes just piles of rock basically
1: yeah and once somebody points them out and you're in a glacial landscape you'll start to see them everywhere
0: Yes. Yes. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot in Rocky Mountain National Park, if you've ever been through there, and until someone says, look at that moraine, and then you're like, wow, these are everywhere.
1: Yeah, I have actually stayed at a place called Moraine Campground in Rocky oh. Mountain National Park. <laughs> there uh, you go. A special side note to anybody that decides to do that, there are two moraine campgrounds. Go to the right one.
0: Yes, <laughs> I, I remember this debacle. Uh-huh. In the story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um but all over rocky mountain national park if you're interested um there are moraines and so you can get stuff like terminal moraines which that's intuitive that's yeah. the you know furthest a glacier gets right so terminal um but if you're in an alpine setting there are lateral moraines which are basically how high up the walls of the canyon the glacier gets um all kinds of cool moraines probably the most famous moraine is long island <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So if you think about structural engineering and engineering geology, and you think, what's the best thing to build on? Big pile of unconsolidated, multi-sized rock. Probably not the best idea.
1: Not what would come to mind.
0: Yeah. And yet, there's Long Island. Yeah, it's true. Uh, So, I mean, if you think about the shape of Long Island, it looks like a moraine. You can imagine a big continental ice sheet, and it just leaves behind that little strip of unconsolidated rock, and that's it.
1: Yeah. and So
0: what's your favorite glacial feature, landform?
1: Favorite one? Oh, I, I would say my favorite one has to be an esker.
0: Oh, mine too. <laughs> but I'm glad yeah. you picked it so you can explain it because they're super weird.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so eskers are these long, narrow ridges that weave all around. Basically, it's like the inverse of a river channel.
0: Oh, that's exactly how I explain it. It's an inverted river.
1: And exactly. that's that's exactly what it is. So yes. <laughs> you have... We talked about water being under glaciers and flowing. Well, sometimes what happens is you actually get enough energy from the water flowing that the ice melts above where it's flowing and opens up this big channel and water flows rapidly through the channel then say the the input from drainage or whatever goes down well the ice will start to deform and creep and flow in and close the channel as much as it can but that water has carried a lot of sediment in there in the meantime and you basically get this inverse river channel
0: yeah, they're kind of hard to think about because, I mean, it's easy to think about a river, and then if you say there's a river under a glacier, you still think about a river, but this is sort of, yeah, that pile of rocks associated with all the sediment that was in <laughs> that ice tunnel. It's They're kind of cool. Um, they're cool to look at, so you should Google those guys.
1: Yeah, and so you can even get these, like, braided patterns and uh, another fun word... Uh, after a glaciologist, was these big channels under the ice, uh, depending on exactly their type. But we'll say for these, they're generally going to be Roethlisberger channels or (laughs) R channels because nobody can actually spell Roethlisberger correctly.
0: (laughs) R channels, yep. I like that.
1: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But as uh, you were about to say, these are not the only weird things that happen under glaciers with sediment.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, well, they're definitely the weirdest because they're very strange looking. Um, But sort of in that same line are these things called drumlins. Also not intuitive what they are. Um, But these are big piles of sediment. Um, Not in any specific channel, but they are sort of pointed on each end. So you can tell the direction of flow of the glacier, right? Because they've been sort of... Scoured into this diamondy shape, and they're just these big hills that are carved by glaciers, and they're big piles of sediment left behind. They obviously they formed sort of together. You'll get a whole group of drumlins, really obvious in topo maps. Um, a lot of glacial features, because we said that affects the current geomorphology, are very obvious in topographic maps once you know how to identify them.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely, and. From what I can tell, there's a little bit of debate on the exact formation mechanism of drumlins, how much of it is deposited versus how much of it is eroded around the edges, leaving that shape. Uh,
0: Yep, exactly. But
1: either way, they're a feature of what happens with sediment at the base.
0: Right, and um, so another one that isn't um, these sort of kettle lakes which we said is a pretty obvious thing so those are just little lakes that are plucked um something that goes along with these are these things and it's spelled k-a-m-e and i will say i don't know if it's kame or that's how i say it um and they often go along with that and they're just drumlins that don't have these pointed structures they're just piles of sediment um so that's why drumlins are sort of enigmatic because you get these piles of sediment especially ones that go along with these little kettle lakes. You scoop out the kettle lake, and then you got to drop the sediment somewhere, right? Um, yeah. But these drumlins have these pointed edges, and that's really kind of cool because we don't quite know what they are. Um,
1: Though yeah. kettle lakes, you said plucked, and I'm going to disagree with that.
0: Okay, it's not plucked.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> kettle lakes actually are where ice has calved or broken off the front of a glacier, and laid there, and then melted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, pluck was a um, bad choice, especially when we're talking about glaciers, I guess.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because there is this very specific process of plucking. Yep, exactly. (laughs) But these are exactly what you would imagine. They're these little, oddly-shaped lakes that, like I said, a big block of ice fell off, made a hole, and then melted in it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they're kind of rounded kettle-like, and there's usually a whole bunch of them. Um, So, you know, there you get your Minnesota land of 10,000 lakes. Um, Another thing, and we haven't, we've been talking about, you know, glaciers that, and the things they've, the landforms that they create on continents. But you mentioned something earlier in this show, and that's dropstones. And I think these are really cool because some of the coolest sort of dropstones I've seen are actually in Death Valley, which is not somewhere you'd think about.
1: (laughs) Glaciers or ice? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so ice sheets are on the land and then when they, they can still go out over the ocean, right? I mean, there's ice over the ocean and the land in both Antarctica, right? Right. Um, and as they do that, they carry their sediments along with them. But you think about the sediment that's in an ocean and it's usually really fine grained stuff, but that ice is going to melt. It's carrying along a big boulder and it's exactly what it sounds like. Ice melts, drops that boulder, and so you get a large rock in the middle of all this super fine-grained sediment. How did it get there? Must have been by ice. Um, And it's really cool to see these in the rock record. They're actually super neat because you've got this really huge, you know, pebble, boulder-sized grain that's deformed all this nice, quiet fine grain sediment that usually is forming in the ocean and then it gets sedimentation just keeps occurring and it sort of deforms around that big dropstone. And so that's also one way that to know that that was really cold at that time when that dropstone got deposited.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's one of the ways to make sedimentology more interesting.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Not that you would need to. <laughs> but they are cool. Right. But
1: I don't think we're going to get through near everything we had on the outline. At some point, we're going to have nope. to revisit this topic. Like I said, maybe <laughs> maybe with some experts
0: uh,
1: that will keep us from saying too much incorrectly.
0: Uh, yeah, like how to pronounce K-A-M-E. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think that's probably a good place. We've talked about some of the weird features. Um, maybe in our next glacial show, we'll address climate and then some of the really catastrophic features that a lot of these big glacial lakes just during the last ice age you know were responsible for forming and we can visit some of those and there's some really great sort of online tours that we'll link in there for some of these big catastrophic events
1: yeah so i think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday
0: did you like how I tried to put a little segue into there about how you like to listen to things?
1: Yeah, there was some foreshadowing for yeah. sure there. Uh, so
0: Of course, everyone's quit listening by now.
1: Yeah, this is, this is going to be a long one, so if you've made it this far. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is a paper about infrasound, which I actually have an infrasound instrument in my living room sitting right behind me.
0: Of course you do. Uh Uh-huh.
1: And (laughs) infrasound is just exactly what its name implies. It's below sound. It's really low-frequency pressure waves. Not such a low frequency that we're talking about weather systems that move through generally. But we're looking at hundreds of seconds, period, up to maybe a few hertz.
0: So nothing we can hear.
1: Nothing we can hear at all. Now, some animals can hear it. Uh, elephants, right. for example, are sensitive to infrasound. They may not Big hear ears. it, traditional <laughs> hearing, but they are sensitive to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So this, this paper uh, was one paper of several that was talked about in an EOS article that you found. Uh, mm-hmm. But the paper that I picked out of it was Aerosmith at all a framework for estimating stratospheric wind speeds from unknown sources and application to the 2010 December 25th bolide.
0: And Aerosmith is a great name for, you know, right. meteorologist, I think.
1: And this paper has a lot of great things going for it. We'll just mm-hmm. uh, Yeah. All of the things that we like.
0: (laughs) I know, exactly. (laughs) Who knew that people were using all of these things together to do research? It's awesome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. So by using infrasound and a known source, people have been trying to probe the wind field of the upper atmosphere because that's something that is difficult and expensive to measure, but important for weather prediction.
0: Right, exactly. Because you can have all this stuff at the surface, but if you don't know what's coming and what's up there in the... 500, 250 millibar range, you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen. And I know that sort of when I was graduating and stuff, there was a big push to install all these LiDAR stations, um, which is just a laser that you point straight up and get a wind field, right? I know that's an oversimplification.
1: Yeah, that's an oversimplification <laughs> of LiDAR, but sure, that's that's basically the idea. Exactly. But as the name would imply and... From what it sounds like, uh, you should read lidar as money.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Lasers are always money, um, and I mean, more importantly, you have to have you'd have to have a massive array of lidar stations to adequately model the upper atmosphere too because you're only looking at what you can see directly above you so while they are useful you know you'd have to have so many to make them extremely applicable which is you know what this paper is sort of trying to overcome
1: right and even using weather balloons which people say oh we launch a ton of weather balloons in the u.s it's true every station that launches them launches two a day but there's only 32 stations in the U.S. Right. and its territories that launch weather balloons. And when you're trying to do numerical weather prediction, that is incredibly sparse sampling.
0: Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we need cheaper ways. I mean, data is expensive. Yeah. So what are some cheaper ways that we can understand these upper air systems? Because that's pivotable, pivotal in understanding um, modeling. Because as we all know, meteorological modeling doesn't work out so well.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> So <laughs> what uh, what they did in this paper was try to extend some work that had been done previously by saying, well, knowing that there's an infrasound event, like something blowing up in the atmosphere, a large chemical explosion is a good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't always get those. And right. <laughs> we hopefully don't. And maybe we don't know the exact source or time, or if we do... Like I said, they're pretty rare. It's not a—if a not, right. that's all you can use to sample, you're not going to have very good sampling either. But this is a technique to use unknown sources that could be coming from anywhere to get the same upper atmosphere information. And in this case, they know what the source was, but for the purposes of doing the test, they say, we know nothing about the source, hand the data to this algorithm and see what comes out. And it turns out it's very similar to what would come out if you knew the source location.
0: Knew it, right. So it's sort of a proof of concept idea. So now I thought about this a little bit, and I don't understand either of these things all that well, Um, but I felt like this was sort of like how people are using passive seismic now. Yeah. Like all this stuff that's always happening all the time now we're using it to ferret out sort of events that before, you know, we would be interested in. And hopefully we were pointing something or had our seismometers in the right place at the right time. But now there's all this passive data. And I feel like this is sort of what it's doing, but in the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. And it's it still relies on events. So this would be like saying any small right. earthquake in the area will do. But right. they hint at their future work wants to use something called microbarums. Yes. Which these this are cool. These are about 10-second period waves uh, that come from ocean waves and sloshing.
0: Which is, it's the interaction of those waves that produces these things, right? And that's what you're listening to?
1: Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I think we may have talked about these as standing waves. We did. At some point. <laughs> it feels like a long time ago, probably because it was.
0: It was a long time ago, yes.
1: uh, <laughs> And that would be semi equivalent to a seismological technique that's becoming popular now called ambient noise tomography which is right. exactly what you said there's continuous noise recorded on these seismometers but one person's signal is another person's <laughs> noise and vice versa exactly uh, yeah so they they take this what most people would throw away and extract incredible things from it and i even love that you know there's a famous program for calculating you say, I know the earthquake's here. I know my station's here. When mm-hmm. will the various uh, phases arrive, like the P, the S, all those? Uh, there's right. a program called Tau P that you use. And in section 2.3 of this paper, they say the forward model using the study is based on the Tau P equations.
0: <laughs> oh, man, this is great. Rocks, uh-huh. atmosphere, it's all just different time scales, exact same physics.
1: <laughs> and the. Uh, The other thing they do is when they're doing this inversion, they talk a lot about you have to provide some initial information. You have to provide an initial model. Right. And how sensitive the inversion is to what the initial model is is an important parameter. Also, how sensitive, how much you have to damp it. And damping an inversion is a weird idea. Have you ever had to deal with this?
0: Oh, no. Thank goodness.
1: (laughs) So in an ideal world, where data perfectly represents the world never and yes <laughs> <laughs> and there is no conflicting redundant etc data you can perform a perfect inversion right as you said that never happens so <laughs> we're always trying to fit the majority of the data uh, What does most of the data indicate? What is the best physical model that's not going to be real life? It's just a model that describes the observations. So you have to damp this to ever get it to converge. Otherwise, it's going to blow up. And... They do some experiments like you have to do with these inversions. In fact, in figure 11 of the paper in the top panel, you can see all of a sudden the wind speed swings wildly. It looks like a perfect sine wave from plus yeah. 50 to minus 50 meters a second. Right. And that's a numerical instability.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it gets really complicated. I don't recommend following the math unless you don't have anything else to do
0: oh yeah just read this eos article that's the way to go
1: (laughs) the eos article is nice um there are some great figures in the paper in figure nine you get to see what the signal from this bolide explosion over the ocean looks like as it moves Mm -hmm. across the array which is kind of fun thinking about uh, a meteor that no one saw that we never would have known entered the earth's atmosphere and blew up except for these data
0: so cool yes I agree. And probably happens all the time. Uh, the, man, yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about infrasound and tornadoes, which I know we've talked about personally a lot before. And uh, yeah, that's really cool. Um, I do like the part where they say, talk about the observations of this fickle oceanic source. Yes. <laughs> when they're <laughs> discussing these microberms. <laughs> I always like it when scientists can know how their assumptions are working and make fun of them all the same.
1: Yeah, especially when you have a source that slowly migrates and things. It's not particularly <laughs> pleasant to deal with.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: But mm-hmm. I think that's that's most of what I had about this fun paper. Do you have anything that you wanted to add?
0: Uh, no, I mean, I just thought it was I, – I really thought that their sort of future work was the cool part of the – I mean, it's all cool, but that was the cool part, and I did get stuck down a lot of wiki holes looking at um, this – a rise project which is looking at infrasound all in Europe and trying to adequately sort of provide this big atmospheric coverage and i think that will make a big i don't think i know that that will make a big difference in numerical weather models and it will be interesting to see how much they improve when you can assimilate all this into them now
1: yeah and any time you can measure something in a non-traditional way i'm there uh. <laughs>
0: Yeah, this seemed right up your alley the second I clicked on it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you found this one. I don't know how I didn't see this come out in EOS.
0: Yep, gotcha.
1: (laughs) But we will definitely have to talk about infrasound more and maybe even get somebody on. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yes, so we are trying to line up some guests. If you know somebody that you would like us to have on or something you would like us to discuss, uh, you should tell us about it because otherwise we'll never know that that's what you're longing to learn about. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh exactly um we're you know we're only ever five shows ahead of the game so um we're open to any suggestions and anything oh five shows ahead about.
1: of the game that's hey i'm
0: trying to sound like <laughs> we, we're running a professional operation here <laughs> okay one show ahead of the game
1: <laughs> that's a little better yeah
0: <laughs> um so in a twist of events where can they send uh those recommendations to us john
1: Oh, wow. Okay, I get to do this this week. (laughs) Well, you can get a hold of us by emailing show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. There's always show notes and lots of interesting stuff on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, we're at Don't Panic Geo. You get to see all kinds of fun stuff that we post there. Don't forget to go to iTunes and rate the show. It really helps people find our show. And uh,
0: hey, th- hey, that was my line.
1: Hopefully, <laughs> you get to uh, tell us what you like and don't like. Shannon, is there any other way that you would like them to give feedback to us? <laughs>
0: Well, you can always send pronunciation um, updates to me at Shannon Doolin on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Audio
1: comments are fantastic. (laughs) We like playing those.
0: Uh, Yes. Um, So thanks to all those who have written in. Um, We're super excited that more than our parents are listening. And uh, keep it up.
1: Absolutely. And until next week, don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.